morning. You got your Bibles, go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Get there, let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you and praise you, God, for being God. Please speak to us. Help us to learn more about you, to draw closer to you, Father God. Give us understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. We're still talking about life in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. And last week we talked a little bit about walking in the Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 1. I'm sorry. Chapter 8, verse 1. Talking about walking in the Spirit. And last week we talked about how that life in the Spirit doesn't always seem like we would conceive it to be. And most times when we think about life in the Spirit, we get this supernatural, crazy, He-Man type concept where the power of grace God come down from the sky and we just transform into crazy people and mountains start to move and dirt start turning into gold and everything becomes amazing. But a lot of times God shows off and shows his greatness, shows his amazingness just by taking what we have, where we are, and utilizing that to accomplish his goals and his means. He don't have to show off by doing something spectacular, but the spectacular thing he does is uses what we got, our limitations, and use that to win the ball game. And that's something that we have to keep in mind as we move forward into understanding God and living this life all the way out to the full is that God has equipped you with what you need to do what it is he called you to do. And even your limitations are tools for his work and tools for his accomplishing his task. That you can't shock God, but he will shock you by taking what you got, where you at, what you're going through, and pulling that together to accomplish his means. So as we go transform, transition and move a little forward into it, first we're going to focus on this couple verses from this chapter, chapter 8, and building more of a foundation before we get into all the spooky stuff that ain't going to be that spooky, (laughs) because God's a little more simple in his operations than what people make him out to be. Why he does, does it that way, I have no idea. But there's a couple of things that the scripture highlight as you read through the New Testament and even in the Old Testament that happens as a result of the Spirit of God being inside of you. Like in John chapter 14, we read a little bit, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit come. He talked about the Holy Spirit teaching you and leading you and guiding you into all truth. So we get information. The Holy Spirit is a teacher. He teaches us, he guides us, he instructs us in the way of the truth. In Acts chapter 1, I think it's like verse 8, Jesus talking about how you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So we get instructions, we get power. And he said that power comes upon us and make us witnesses, make us martyrs, make us one who testify. So a part of that power is boldness. So we get teaching, we get boldness, we get power, the ability to do all these things when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Romans chapter 15 talks about us being sanctified by the Spirit. Titus chapter 3 talks about the Spirit regenerating us and making us brand new, recreating us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, talking about the Spirit giving us gifts as he will. So all of these are things that we get 
when we get the Holy Spirit. Galatians talking about that if you're filled with the Spirit or if you walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. All these are promises, are guarantees of life in the Spirit. But one of my favorites is this one right here in Romans chapter 8 that we're going to look at. It talks about walking in the Spirit, a life in the Spirit. And as we go through this, we have to try and keep it in context. And it's pretty hard to do picking up right here at chapter 8. But up until this point, Paul has been building, this is basically his most complete case about salvation. He started from point zero. The people who say that there is no God, or say that they don't believe in God, or don't know God. That's where he starts in chapter one. And he builds the case all the way to show you that. The truth or the reality of who God is, is demonstrated in our hearts by the way that God created us and the way he created the earth. And that everybody falls under condemnation and they know it. That both Jew and Gentile alike, that's for those who know God and those who don't know God. That's why he used the terms. So those who are brought up under the teachings of God, under the laws of God, and those who are brought up without a consciousness of God, they both know that they are guilty before God. That the testimony of the spirit in their hearts, the testimony of creation, the law that God put in them, condemns them and let them know that they know they're guilty. They know that they are wrong. So there is no separation between Jew and Greek. We all are sinful. We all are raised up under Adam. And he goes through and talks about how the sin comes through Adam. And that Adam condemns us through the sinful nation, through the sinful nature. And he keeps making this case that the only way to be just before God is through faith. That's the only way to get it. Then he goes in talking about this faith and life in the spirit and gets to chapter six. Like since you're talking all this faith stuff, since you're talking all this grace stuff, do that mean we need to just go on sinning, doing whatever we want to? As you say, what well, sin abound, grace abound more. No, no, that can't be. And he goes to show you the life or the reality of what the spirit do, how we're being made new through Christ Jesus. Then he get to the confusing chapter in chapter seven, the one everybody debates over. When he talks about life under the law, apart from the spirit in chapter seven, I, the stuff I want to do, I can't do. And the stuff I don't want to do, I keep doing. And he got this confused man going on. And everybody like to say, see, this is testimony and proof that you can't ever live right. Because Paul the Apostle said he can't do the stuff he wanted to do. That ain't what he was talking about. He's showing you life apart from the law. Because Paul elsewhere gave testimony that when it comes to the law, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, and he was blameless. So in chapter 7, when he talked about he didn't know covetousness until the law came, at what point did he not know? He was raised in it. So what he was doing was putting himself in the position of a person not knowing the law, a person detached from the law, and showing you how the life is when the law comes and illuminates sinfulness in our heart. And so he begins to talk about this other law that's in our members, the law of sin and death that condemns us, that keep us separated from God. And he ends with his glorious chant at the end of chapter 7 when he talks about who's going to deliver me from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And it comes to where we're going to focus on in verse 8. I mean, chapter 8, verse 1. Said so there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So therefore now, so we have the place 
with this life in the spirit, that we are free from condemnation. This is a part of life in the spirit. No more condemnation. What he means by no condemnation is that the judgment against you, you're being sentenced to damnation. A damnable decree is how some dictionaries put it. It has been exempted. Nobody can damn you. Nobody can sentence you to hell. Nobody can cast you off away from God. Now, those who are in Christ Jesus. So, but the, the question is, as we keep this in mind, how do we get there? Why is it that we should be condemned in the first place? As he said, there is therefore now no condemnation. So there was a point in which there was condemnation. How do we get there? Why is this condemnation upon people? John 3.36, look at it. But don't lose your place in Romans 8. Oh, I forgot, y'all don't need new stuff. Y'all can't do that. Electronic Bible. John 3.36. It says, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. This is John 3.36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. So those who don't believe on the Son, it said the wrath of God abides, it remains, it stays, it dwells on them. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Just throw a couple of these out. I'm going to get back. I'm trying to paint a picture. Ephesians chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 2. It says, Wherein in time past you walked according to the look, to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh in of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So this is Paul giving a description of us before we came to Jesus. So you walked according to the course of this world, fulfilling the desires of the lust of the flesh, saying you were by nature the children of wrath. So there's something concrete in human beings that makes us recipients of God's wrath. That's just the reality of it. By our nature, we're under the wrath of God. We're condemned by God. And we're in a state where we are not acceptable to live with God. But when we make it back to Romans chapter 8, and Paul talking about all that stuff, through 7, about this law that condemns us, about this law that shows us the exceeding sinfulness of our sin, he comes to this point where he said, now there is therefore no condemnation. So he's going to begin to expound why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it says, to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Verse 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus have made me free from the law of sin and death. So this is the number one reason why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It said, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus have made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, in Romans, Paul used this word law a couple different ways. Really, just two I can think of right off the top of my head. In, in, verse, in chapter 7, he talks about there being another law at work in my members. 
in chapter 7 also, he talked about the law being good. By the law bringing death and bringing condemnation. So he talks about a law that is good, a law that brings death and condemnation, but also a law that is at work in our members. And what he's showing is, is there's the, the law of Moses, the writings, the Torah, the commandments that we most obey. That's one form of the law. But then there's a principle that he's referring to when he says the law that dwells inside of our hearts. That controls, that dictates to us. We use the same thing most of us don't pay attention to. Like when we're talking about the law of gravity. We're not talking about rules that we find on a piece of paper somewhere. We're talking about a principal force that controls or directs the way things move and operate on this earth. You understand what I'm saying? So that's what he's talking about when he talked about the law of sin and death. He's talking about that principle that God has set forth, but it's also a principle that dwells inside of us, that moves and that controls and that dictates our movement and our being. So this law of sin that dwells inside of us, we have been liberated from it. Said so the law of the spirit of life. So this spirit of life that Christ Jesus brings, it liberates us from this law, this principle of sin and death that dwells inside of us. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So if you think about it, just think back over your life and, and just think about yourself. Some of the biggest struggles that you had and when you felt bad about something, and you, you wanted to overcome it, and you thought about it, and you were going to do this, that, and that, and you made all them promises to yourself and, and God, and you cried, and you wept, and you tried your best not to do it again. And then you caught yourself, after you have done it, doing it again. Anybody ever experienced that before? Like, you're not even conscious of the fact that you did it. And this is not long after you done cried, you done promised, and you didn't say the decrees and the declarations and all that stuff. And before you're even conscious of it, you find yourself back in the same activity that you just made all these promises you weren't going to do. Then once it's done and it's over with, you feel bad. And you're like, man, I just did that again. You understand it. And that shows you that there's a principle that exceeds you, that dwells inside of you, that goes beyond your conscious mind. That has created a life pattern for you that we must be liberated from. And what Paul is saying is there's a spirit of life in Christ Jesus that has the ability to liberate us from this law, to liberate us from this principle so that we cannot be controlled by the dictates of this thing that once controlled us, that once ruled over us. You understand what I'm saying? It's like once you started talking, we say this all the time. You've been lying since you were talking. It's like one of the first things you did after daddy and mama. You just started lying. <laughs> Before you knew how to read or anything else, you knew how to lie. Nobody had to teach you. Nobody had to train you. It just started flowing. Then at one point, you become an adult, and somebody started telling you about God and lying being wrong and so on and so forth, and you do the same thing. You make them promises. But then you find yourself in conversation and you tell a lie and you be walking away and you be like, I just lied to them. <laughs> I ain't even had to. <laughs> I ain't even had to lie. I ain't lie about nothing. 
Now, am I the only one that have done that? Okay. <laughs> okay, I was just going to I thought I was by myself. <laughs> so I know, it'd be like, what the world I lie for? I went in trouble. <laughs> they could hurt me. We ain't lying about nothing. <laughs> it's just, a lot came out. You didn't even realize it until like, you walked away and reflected on the conversation. I was just lying. <laughs> But you, you understand what I'm saying. But you see that there's a principle at work. There's something that's controlling. There's something that is dictating your actions and your movements. And it's somewhat like a default setting. And it's this what we have to be liberated from in order for us to see the fullness of life in the spirit. But Paul is saying there's a spirit of life in Christ Jesus that can set us free from this law of sin and death. And so everything that's going to come is going to be an explanation of these main basic points. But this is the reason why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So we cannot allow anybody to help us or make us believe that we reach a state where we're condemning free just because we made a confession. That ain't what Paul is talking about. That just because we signed a court, repeated after a preacher, went through some religious ritual, that now we don't get condemned. Now there's nothing bad that can happen to us. Everything is good. And it's all just a form of me just trying to be better at being a Christian. But I can't be bad. You, you understanding what I'm saying? Because I know I had that thought before. I was taught like that. that it, it, it don't matter what you do. Because life ain't about works. Life ain't about how we live. Now that you're in Jesus, you set your state, you wrote your baptism day in the back of your Bible, and any time you have any bad thoughts or any bad feelings, you go back to that, 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 that baptism. And remember that there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And what that does is put us in a cycle where we're content, but discontented with our struggle. And what I mean by that is, we want to be free. We want to stop. We want to love God. We want to do right. But we have concluded in our minds that we're always going to have this thing. And we're always going to be there. And we're just going to get a little bit better. But you're going to always have it, something. And that's the way that we live. You're going to get a little bit better, but you're going to always have something. That sin that so easily besets you, it's always going to be there. But there's no condemnation. And so what we're going to try to do is try to understand this a little bit better. So let's keep rolling with Paul. Picking it back up at verse 2. It says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus have made me free from the law of sin and death. This is why. It says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. This is one of my favorite sentences. So for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Now what in the world does that mean? I like that sentence. Basically what it's saying, because that's for, for this reason, the law, it was something that the law was supposed to do that it could not do. So what was the law supposed to do? The law came to introduce us to righteousness. 
The law came to show us how to live and to give us the dictates of the standards of God. So their conception of the law is, through the law, I gain righteousness. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what the law was supposed to bring. It's supposed to teach us how to live. But it said the law could not do it because the law was weak through the flesh. So what did that mean? Give me a beautiful example. I can say I'm a, I'm a sports guy. I love basketball. And when I was young, I was really into it. I'm talking about reading books, the basketball cards, man, learning stats, studying the history. And I'm talking to you about players from, from the 60s and 70s going through, expounding on Dave Bean and, and Nate Archibald. <laughs> I'm deep into it. And I know one of my favorite books was Larry Bird wrote a book about shooting. Man, I read that book all the time. I read a book by Larry Bird about shooting all the time. I understood it. I can explain to you Larry Bird's conception of shooting. How he practiced, how he went into a game, why he was so confident, his mechanics, his form, all that stuff. So I can spit it back to you. But something strange happened. When I wake up early on a Saturday morning, I disappear down to the basketball court with all the knowledge of what Larry Bird taught me in that book. I'm talking about, I had it down. I'm talking about, I read this book. I ain't do no schoolwork. Write no book reports. I can't tell you about now a novel I ever read any time in all my school history. Because I ain't read none. But this little green book by Larry Bird. I can spit it back to you. I can, I can visualize the pages in my head right now what I'm talking about. Because <laughs> I read this book so much. But I get down there and escape down here early on a Saturday morning. Got my ball, spin that thing out. Stretch. Spread my fingers. Check and make sure the ball is sitting in the palm of my hand. Elbows in. Form straight, body straight, feet square. Shoulder width apart. Doing all the drills just like Larry Bird said he did. But something strange happened. Now I watched Larry Bird. Say, so I had tapes. I didn't have YouTube. I had the tapes. I watched Larry Bird. Three-point contest with a warm-up jacket on. And he shot, man. I'm talking about killing it. Like, this is how you shoot when he out there by himself. Like, barely missing. So, in my mind, I'm doing everything that this book say. Man, it's me out here on the court, man. I'm finna hit by 90 out of 100. <laughs> <laughs> when he don't get down here, I'm gonna be ready, boy. <laughs> Cause I learned everything Larry Bird had to say about you, but there was something strange that happened. I followed the mechanics, did the rules, but I wasn't making shots like Larry Bird made. I shoot ten, make four. Sometimes I get hot. I shoot ten and make seven. I'm like, I got it now. Then I shoot 10 again and make three. I'm like, whoa, man, something, something ain't right. <laughs> yeah, that's horrible, man. And I'm down there by myself. And so I do it like a real basketball player. You know, they, we got these double rims. That's <laughs> what it is. It's the double rims, see. Larry Bird shooting in the gym. 
I'm shooting outside the rim by this thick. So that that what it was. So when I get a chance, after a couple of years, they built Kershaw. I walk, sneak up there sometime. Same thing. At best, four to six was about my average, about fifty percent. And I learned something. Information does not create ability. <laughs> so information don't don't does not create ability. <laughs> so no matter how much I read that book, I could not shoot like Larry Bird. Especially once I got past like 15, 16 feet. That was about my max. Now, within that little area, I was pretty decent. But when I stepped out, tried to be like Larry Bird, just coming on the wheel, and I tried to copy like him. You know what I'm saying? He, he shot so sloppy and so lazy. I'm like, okay, just like that. Couldn't do it. I gave up on Larry Bird. Patrick Ewing became my big favorite. <laughs> but I learned something. Information does not create ability. It just doesn't work. And no matter how much you learn, that does not give you the ability to do. Because if there's a deficiency within you, it's going to always come out. Do you understand what I'm saying? So no matter how much information I learn, it could not give me the ability to shoot like Larry Bird. Now, if we were doing basketball movies, I would have been the best player out there. Because I had the form down. But there were no basketball movies. This is real life. You, you understand what I'm saying? And it's the same thing with us. Information does not create ability. And that's what Paul's saying. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. So us learning the commands of God, us learning the rules about God, us hearing what God wants us to do does not give us the ability to do it. Education is not power. In that sense, you get what I'm saying? Because if you teach a man whose heart is longing to steal, not to steal. All you have taught him is that you don't like stealing. <laughs> That's all you taught him. Because his default setting is to steal. And we all seen it. When we raised the little children up. It's full of you got a lot of. How many times have you told them? Don't you lie to me. Ah. <laughs> You told them. Do you think they understood? They understood. They completely understood that they ain't supposed to lie. But they got this weakness in the flesh that they can't help but to lie. And no matter how many times you tell them, that ain't going to take that lie out of their heart. Because what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The flesh does not have the ability to do what it is that we are being commanded to do. That's what he means. What he said, that what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. That's, that's the state that we're in. Because we had 
How many years of sex education in, in school? A lot of them. <laughs> I don't know when to start. Huh? But we have a lot of them. Like they've been doing this for a very long time. But we still got an abortion rate that's sky high. We still got all type of STDs that's just popping like they making new ones. <laughs> and they're recreating STDs. Like all type of venereal diseases. They're popping all everywhere. We still got it. With all this education, MTV spending millions of dollars talking about wrap it up. And this thing still coming unraveled. Because education, information does not give ability. Because there's a law, there's a principle that rules us, that goes and supersedes our ability to comprehend. We can get it, but that don't mean we're going to do it. Are y'all with me? So that's what he means by what, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. But check what he said. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh in for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So since the law couldn't do it, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. So God sent down his son, the son became sin. He took on the likeness of sinful flesh, and he condemned sin. So the condemnation for sin was poured out or was received through the son. And the thing that he condemned was sin itself. So when Jesus became sin, hung on the cross, he brought condemnation to this whole principle, to this whole law of sin. He condemned it. He cast it down. He overcame it. Because the law could not get us there. Teaching us could not get us there. Telling us could not get us there. So he himself came down to fight this fight against this principle of sin on our behalf. And this is the reason why. In verse 4, said that are for the purpose of, or in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, became sin for us for the purpose of the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So since Jesus came, since he condemned sin in the flesh, even though our flesh is too weak to follow the law, it said the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in us. That's the purpose of his coming. So the righteous standard, the principles of morality that is laid out in the law of Moses, in the Old Testament as we refer to it, is now being fulfilled in us if we walk after the Spirit. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And pay attention to where it's being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled in us. Because the principle that controlled our actions was something that flowed from us, from within. You, you get what I'm saying? Societal pressures did not create our wickedness. It just gave mold or shape to it. You, you get what I'm talking about? Everything that made us who we were that allowed us to sin and be wicked as we are came from within us. There's nothing external to us that's corrupted us, but the corruption flows from within. All the external forces do is give shape to it. And so what he's saying is that now the righteousness of the law, the thing that the law was supposed to bring, 
The thing that the law was supposed to do is now being fulfilled, is being brought to its full, is being completely manifested within us. So the law told Mr. Fuller not to covet. That's the righteous standard, to live free from covetousness. But freedom from covetousness now, if you walk in the spirit, is being fulfilled within him. Now y'all getting what I'm saying? Love, kindness, patience, all this stuff is being placed within and is being manifested within. So all the commandments of God are bringing, are being brought to a full, are being brought to full obedience within, inside of us. So that now that our hearts have been changed, now that our insides have been changed, our life begins to flow and look a bit different. So God is undoing the corruption from the source. Internally. You're tracking with me. But he put a condition on it. He said the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who do what? Walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So you get this righteousness fulfilled in you. If you walk after the spirit, that's the condition. So you got to be walking in the spirit in order to have the righteousness of the law fulfilled in you. And he's going to expound on this. And this. It says, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. So he begins to tell you why the righteousness is going to be fulfilled in you if you walk after the flesh. I mean, after the spirit. It said they that are after the flesh. So let's. Think about this for a second. What does it mean to be after the flesh? The word after, I like to, when I read it, I say according to, or in the pattern of. So they that are after the flesh are those who are patterned or, or live according to the flesh. So that means the thing that, that, that models your life or the thing by which you model your life is the flesh itself. And when we're referring to the flesh now, we're referring to our innate corrupted nature. In verses six, chapter 6 and 7, he talks about this flesh, about there being no good thing within us. And, and, and about the evil corruptness that flows from within. So that innate thing, that natural thing that you do just because you are you, if you live your life according to it, if you pattern yourself based off its desires, its wants, that's living after the spirit. You understand what I'm saying? That makes any sense to you. And it is something I'm pretty sure my, my, my kids get mad at me, but I do this quite often. When they do something crazy, I do something stupid. The first question I always ask is why you do that? And they don't understand and realize that that is a very set up question. That ain't going to do nothing but get them in more and more trouble. I'm just being honest. Well, that's why you do that. Now, the typical answer is, mm -hmm. I don't know. You, you ever ask yourself, well, why I do that? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> now, that's the worst answer that they can give. Because once you say, I don't know, that means you just run around being stupid, doing stuff for no reason. Because my definition of an insane person, a crazy man who does something for no reason whatsoever. To me, that's the definition of insanity. When you're doing something for absolutely no reason. 
And like I said, it's just something I believe God taught me. Walking on the streets of Atlanta. Saw this man. And he was just talking. He was just doing this. Walking up the street. And I'm seeing like for like two blocks away. I'm just watching. He's just doing that. I'm like, something wrong with that, man. Now, why did I say something wrong with it? Because the only reason you talk is because you're talking to somebody. Right? But when nobody around. But then I'm like, maybe he on the Bluetooth. Maybe he on the Bluetooth. Because he wants it like, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you talk to yourself and you, or, or some folks are thinking out loud. <laughs> but he was all animated with you. He walked back to the other side. Oh man, get a little closer. Don't see no cell phone. Don't see no Bluetooth. Like, why in the world is he doing this? And God spoke to me. Like, why do you think something wrong with him for doing that? Like, I don't know. That just seemed crazy. Like, what's crazy about it? Because he's doing all that, all that motion, making all that noise for absolutely no reason. I thought about it. Hmm. That's true. Because if he were doing all that, and he would talk to somebody, even if he was on the phone doing all that, you would understand it. You would excuse it. Because you say, oh, that's why. You, 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 you get what I'm saying? And you think the same thing. Like, you see me just doing this. You'd be like, what's wrong? <laughs> but then you walk up, and you see how it was bees around. <laughs> And you're like, oh, but the moment you thought that I was just doing that, just be doing that with no reason whatsoever, you thought in your mind, he crazy. So that means you believe that when you're doing actions, especially extreme actions for no purpose whatsoever or for no cause or no reason, that's crazy. You understand what I'm saying? So when my children tell me, I don't know why, my question, why you did it then? Because if you have no reason for doing it, it should not be done. Because we are rational beings as human beings. God gave us a mind. But life in the flesh has distorted what the theologians call our noetic ability. Uh, uh, the way our mind processes and live and, and do make decisions. Because what we have now is an instinctive or impulsive way of living. We don't think about what we do, and we do big things, life-changing things, for no reason whatsoever, because we have a compulsion or a desire or an impulse within us that compels us. You understand what I'm saying? And what happens is, our strongest desires are our most wicked and sinful desires because we ain't took time to cultivate our spirit. So once we live our lives by pure impulse, what you end up doing is live your life according to the what? The flesh. Because that's the strongest thing within you. So when you're making impulse decisions, when you're making decisions purely based on how you feel, you end up living life according to your flesh. and You end up putting yourself in positions that causes you to be under condemnation. 
You, you, you're tracking what I'm saying. But what Paul is saying, those who are after the flesh, they do mind the things of the flesh. So there's the way that we pay, the things that we pay attention to, the things that we put our focus on, the things that, that, that drives our mind, that drives our desires, our fleshly things. He said, that's a, a red flag to you that you are after the flesh, what you put your mind on. You understanding what I'm saying? So we need to begin to evaluate our heart and evaluate our life decisions and our life's patterns to try to see where's the focus of my attention. If it's purely on my desires, if it's purely on my feelings, if it's purely on the perception that people will have about me because of such and such and such and such, that's a testimony to us that we are living our lives according to the flesh. You, you, you get what I'm saying? Because all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So if the purpose for my decision goes back to one of those three things, good chance that the decision I am making is a fleshy decision, which shows me that my mind is centered upon fleshly things. So if I'm worried about how I'm going to look because of this decision, if I'm worried about how people will perceive me because of this decision, am I going to be cool? Am I going to be ostracized? That goes towards the pride of life. If I'm doing it purely because it looked good. Purely because it just appealed to me. I want it. Why do you want it? Because I just do. That's the lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh is I got a strong desire that builds from my strong desire. You, you, you get what I'm saying? When you try to dial it back and you try to get a reason for it, it goes back to, I just want to. Like, why do you want to? I just want to. You, you get what I'm saying? But if those are the things that control our mind, controls our way of thinking, that's a sign to us that we are after the flesh. But what he said, those who are after the spirit, they do mind the things of the spirit. So there's some things of the spirit that we have to begin to put our mind on, that we have to begin to focus on, and that what allows the transformation or the change or the, the, the prompt to us that we are walking in the Spirit. Paul in Philippians talking about, think on these things, whatsoever things are pure, beautiful, loving, of good report. What he's talking about is the, the, the setting of your mind. In Colossians, he says, set your affections on things above where Christ is seated. It's the setting of the mind. It's the focus of our heart that shows us the disposition or the pattern of our life. You get what I'm saying? It's one strange and amazing thing about human beings that we are naturally mimickers. If you pay attention to us, we mimic and we do it subconsciously. We just got this innate thing in us that we, we mimic and we have to train ourselves not to be. That's why folks when say stuff is like contagious. Not really contagious. You mimic. So if somebody yawn, eventually you yawn. Because there's some within us that causes us or creates within us the ability to mimic. That's why people accents change. Not even paying attention to it. Like I said, I had a cousin two years from me. We pretty much grew up together. Ran around, see the park, flipping on dirty matches. He moved to Rhode Island. I have no idea who that guy is, but <laughs> because he had a tone and a texture and a language that was right. 
Well, now he's been living up in Rhode Island for all these years. Like, his, his, his speech is all messed up. They don't know what they did to this brother. Nobody understand what he's saying. <laughs> you, you, you get what I'm saying? It is living in that context, living in that culture for all those years, he don't even realize that he's doing. He don't know that when he was down here, he said, you ain't going to slap me. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't talking about Jones and all that. <laughs> what is that, man? It pitched and went up a little bit. I don't know. There's something strange going on up there. Them folks don't talk right. <laughs> but there's this, this this tendency with us. We begin to mimic. We begin to shape. We begin to pattern ourselves after the things that we're most influenced by. And our influences is to our exposure. That's why people expect that if you work in a place with a whole lot of cussing going on, eventually you're going to start doing what? Cussing. That's just the expectation. But they don't understand the science behind it. That we, we got these genes that causes us to mimic. So what Paul is saying is that what we need to do to help our shape, to help our form, and to help our expression is to set our mind. So the thing that you put before you, the thing that you focus on, the thing that you give the most attention to is the thing that will shape you. You get what I'm saying? And he said, those who are after the spirit, within them is something that compels them to set their minds on things of the spirit. You, you get what I'm saying? So this is what helps free us or liberate us from walking in this condemnation. So our mind has to turn its attention to spirit and spiritual things because that's a setting for walking in the spirit. So we can't always be flesh, 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 flesh. Can't always be sin, foolishness, nothingness for 90% of our days then expect to be spiritual giants. It ain't going to work. Because what you mind, that's what you follow. Are you with me? And this he explained to you why. Says six. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So the carnal mind is equals what? Death. Spiritual mind brings life and peace. Said because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the. So there's something about our carnal mind, our natural mind, the mind that we were born with, the mind that controls most of our actions as we just grow up and be, it said it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So he threw out some impossibilities. So if I'm walking in the flesh, he said, I'm not subject to the law of God. What he mean by that is the law of God has no sway. It has no pull. It has no power over me. So to tell me, God said don't is to tell me nothing at all because I don't obey that. You get what I'm saying? To tell me God says if I'm living in the flesh is to tell me nothing. Because I don't live my life based off God. And he goes, make it deeper and say it cannot be. It can't obey the things of God. The flesh is exempt. The flesh does not have the ability to do what God wants it to do. It's impossible. 
So think about this for a minute. If I find in myself a godly desire, if I'm reading in the script and God compels me to do something and I go and begin to act, try to do it, and I see the impossibility of me pulling it off, what should I glean from that? Think about it. God said, I say, I believe God said, let me go do. And I go do. And no matter how hard I try, I can't do. What does that teach me? That you're trying to do it in the flesh. Because the flesh cannot do what God wants it to do. The flesh is incapable of following the laws and the, and the commands of God. So he's saying, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. We are impossible from pleasing God if we're living in the flesh. Because the flesh don't have the power. No matter the information, it does not gain the ability. The flesh is exempt. The flesh is corrupt. The flesh is, is an enemy of God. Now just think about this. The flesh is God's enemy, according to what Paul said. In the flesh is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. John sums it up. That's all that's in the world. And John even says, he said, those who are, who love the world are enemies of God. So now let's, let's think about this for a minute. If I spend my life consumed with worldliness, consumed with fleshliness, but claim to love God, one or two things is true. Neither one of them is good. One, either I'm a faker and I'm just putting on, or two, I'm deceived and don't know no better. Those are the only possibilities because enemies don't bang. You, you, get, you get what I'm saying? Like I, when it was living in, I went to Cloverdale, that's what it was. Went to Cloverdale. I had this guy. He was my friend, but we really had nothing in common. And he just became my friend by default. But the reason he became my friend because he learned I was from Cedar Park and he was from Spring Valley and gangs had just started taking off in Spring Valley. And the gang that started taking off in Spring Valley around that time, the mid-90s, was the Bloods. And he knew I was from Cedar Park and there's a whole bunch of folk in Cedar Park. So he just assumed I was folk. So he became my friend just to pick at me and try to make me say that I was folk. The, the whole time, that's all we talk about, sitting up in classroom. He'll walk up to me, or see me sitting down, if I'm in there first, like, what up, kid folk? Like, nah, man, don't bang like that. <laughs> and it, it'll take off the whole rest of the class. We ain't did now. We ain't talk. It's him trying to make me say I'm folk. Ain't you, ain't you from Cedar Park? Like, yeah, man. Born and raised. And he just go on, talk about all the game knowledge and so on and so forth. And I just sit there and talk with him. But in his mind, affiliation meant something. And what he was trying to get at is that me and him supposed to be beefing. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I promise you that it's real. <laughs> That's what he was getting at. Because he'll say little stuff, make little jabs, and I will respond. I'll be like, nothing. Still show up, still kick it with it and talk to him the next day. But in his mind, since I was from Cedar Park, that mean I had to be folk. And he was blood. We was supposed to be beefing. So at some point in time, we was supposed to fight. But I know we'll fight. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I don't care. <laughs> But that put something in my mind, though. And it inbred within me the depths of affiliation. Because even though I went down, I understood it. And there was some times, man, I, I used to have band practice. And I had to walk from Cloverdale to Cedar Park. And that was a little neighborhood. Y'all probably don't know. It's a little retirement home up there now. You walk, go down Fairview, where the little CVS at. It was used to be a neighborhood right there. They was all bloods. I'm talking about these was showing up like gangsters. And I tell you, man, when we get ready to walk home from band practice, you know, clover there, I color with red and white. I had my gym shorts on. But once I thought about it, making my way down Fairview, crossing from East Fairview to West Fairview, put my drum down, put my pants back on. <laughs> 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 because I ain't fooling with them because if I walk by there with them red shorts on they're going to strike up and they're going to ask me some stuff about their gang I don't know nothing about their gang and I'm from a neighborhood where our people don't fool with y'all people I ain't with them folks in there but I live with them folks in there so if they don't fool with you I don't fool with you You, you, you get what I'm saying? So I put my pants on and I cross the street. I walk on the other side of the street and I walk very fast until I cross that bridge by car. But now I'm at home. <laughs> Is it that one little strip? I ain't play no games. Because my people didn't fool with them people. And if folk from my neighborhood saw me up there talking to them people from the neighborhood, once I get back home, I'm going to have some questions to answer to. And if them people find out that I was going to see the park, I was going to have some fighting to do. I ain't want none of it. But you get what I'm getting at. This concept of affiliation and the impossibility of mixing was inbred in me. And it was something that was amazing when I became a Christian. I realized that church folk don't got the same devotion like hood folk. I'm, I'm serious. That was one of the first things I noticed. Like church folk don't get down like hood folk. Because hood folk, when we together, we together. Now we might fight, beat each other up, maybe shoot at each other. But you ain't finna do it. You you get what I'm saying? When my mama wake me up Saturday morning and send me to the store in the shack, if I'm walking by myself, I walk around Mobile Highway. If I got some crew with me, we cross the ditch and we walking through there. 
the reason I walk around when I'm by myself, because it might be a possibility that somebody going to say something to me. And if they say something to me, I'm by myself, and all of them going to beat me up. They won't let me fight one of them. But it worked the same way to reverse. If one of them says something to me, and my people were with me, all of us going to beat them up. Ain't going to be no one-on-one. And it was because we had this affiliation where since we from the same place, we live in the same place, we on the same team. And anybody on another team, they ain't with us. Then I got in Christianity, and I realized that you can play for every team there is. But it's okay. You, know, you, you, you still with Jesus. You get what I'm, what I'm getting at? That's what I'm saying. You got Christian and put anything after it. Christian strippers. Like, like, what, what? How in the world you do that? But they still live. And then I go over my pick a little bit to the associations of the things that we feed ourselves. I knew some people who were cold-heartedly devoted to things that maybe it was just my immaturity that I thought was completely and utterly false and wrong. But they engrossed themselves in it. And to me, it wasn't no, a part of right and wrong. It wasn't no part of sin and unsin. To me, it was a part of devotion. It's like if Aaron make a song saying art sucks and people who paint are bombs, no matter how good it sounds, I'm going to hate Aaron's song. Why? Because when I'm here, he's talking about my dad. You get what I'm saying? Because everything he's putting down, everything he's speaking about, my dad is standing for. So no matter how banging it is, you're talking about my dad. Your song sucks. <laughs> you, 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 see, you see what I'm saying? So my sense of devotion and my sense of affiliation to my father created in me a hatred for whatever it was he doing because it was country. But I don't see that same devotion and that same craving, that same hatred from the people of God. We have the ability to glorify, to embrace everything that's contrary to the things that our father upholds and the things that our father says near and dear and true. We big it up. It's great. It's exceptional. Because we got liberty. We got all that. To me, it's bigger than sin. To me, it's about devotion. And to me, it's about, it's about representing, putting on. I can't be down with you as you against all my people. You, you, get, you get what I'm saying? But there's, there's, there's this growing sense and this growing tie to where we just want to be free to be me and we don't want no restraints. But affiliation creates restraints. Because if you diss my people, you dissing me. If you're against my people, you're against me. And the flesh is the enemy of God, so everything that's fleshly, I'm against it. I don't care whether or not it leads me to sin. I don't care. It ain't about that. It's bigger than that. 
I love God and I feel with the spirit of God. So everything contrary to the spirit of God, I need to be contrary to it. That's why Proverbs said the fear of the Lord is to hate sin. Because sin is an enemy of our father, but we cannot couch ourselves and make ourselves comfortable and try to get as close to sin, as close to the world, as close to evil, as close to being cool and acceptable by foolishness as possible and still try to maintain our devotion. Like I said, if the fact that I'm from Cedar Park made me cross the street, the fact that I'm with Jesus should make me turn some stuff off. The fact that I'm with Jesus should make me cut some people off. Because there's a devotion in me. There's a realness I put on for my city. What's your city? New Jerusalem. <laughs> All right, but are you understanding what I'm saying? And this, what Paul is digging at, it always sticks out to me. He said that the carnal mind is an enemy of God. And so the flesh cannot please God. And so everything about the flesh is anti-God, which means everything about the flesh is anti-me, which means I'm anti-everything about the flesh. I hate it. I despise it. I go against it. I fight against it because I love Jesus. And no matter what other thing you got, I'm against that. And I know I might sound a little old school and prudish, but I just said maybe it's my hood faithfulness. Are y'all getting what I'm saying? Because like now, we, we, we conscious now and we woke. Whatever that means. But we conscious and we woke. Well, I just thought about it, man. The only people who have to tell me that they woke are folk who fall asleep. <laughs> like I be sitting with my wife watching TV. Look up. I ain't sleep, I'm woke. <laughs> the only time you gotta say that is when you sleep. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but we, we, we got this new level of consciousness and we, we woke and we and all that stuff and all that's cool. But there's a tendency within us church folks is to once we get our little rabbit things that we click with and we connect with. We connect with everybody who connected with that. So you got folks claiming Jesus, but spend most of their time with the whole tips and, and, and the five percenters and the Hebrew Israelites. And like we bang, we down. We on Snapchat together. I'm saying deep, melanin up in this thing. I'm saying <laughs> so that represent. I'm saying. I'm like, hold on now. That dude said Jesus is a fraud, a liar, and a fake. But y'all on Snapchat, bang it, you know what I'm saying? Doing your thing. Represent, you know what I'm saying? Deep down up in the hood, you know what I'm saying? Black power. Now, how that work? You speak with people. You have communion with people. But if you ain't with my people, I ain't with you, man. You, you, you get what I'm getting at? It's, it's deeper than sin. I can be one with the brother who say my God and my Savior is false. He fake. He a fraud. He's the creation of the white man. But he my brother. That's how we got the same complexion. Hmm. And we ride for the same teams. That's how we got the same complexion. No, nah, dog. My identity is deeper than my complexion. And you can't buy my devotion by looking like me. And you can't affiliate yourself with me just because you look like me. If you dissing my God, you dissing me. 
And this is something we have to keep in mind. Those who are out the spirit do mind the things of the spirit. But understand that the flesh is the enemy of God, which means the flesh is the enemy of you. But the spirit of God can set us free from this flesh that controls us. Are you with me? Anybody got any questions? Go ahead. What the message that we're saying as believers, like with Jesus, you know, he went to, you know, he hung out with all of Good question. I was hoping somebody asked that question. <laughs> you reconcile it by mimicking what Jesus did. Jesus went with the sinners. He hung out with the sinners. But when Jesus was with them, they really were with him, if you get what I'm saying. All the traveling Jesus did, and we got some times, or if you think about when uh, Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am? According to archaeology and some historians, that was at a very secular, religious, pagan site that that took place at. But Jesus talking about the church triumphing over the gates of hell and so on and so forth. But when Jesus was there, one no heathens there, and he was teaching his people about his power to overcome that. But when Jesus was with the heathens, the heathens were with Jesus. So he was eating, drinking, and teaching. That's what he was doing. You don't find times where he's participating in their activities just for the sense of connection. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? So we be with them. We be in the midst of them. But they don't dictate to us what we do and how we live. Because if I'm truly standing and being who I am, they ain't going to want to be with me. Because anytime you get two that are in disagreement, somebody has to compromise in order for us to go forward. You, you, you get what I'm saying? So if they're anti-God and they're doing foolishness, Either they're going to want you to tone down your Jesus or you're going to want them to tone down their foolishness. That's the only way y'all can stay together. Because one of y'all going to be uncomfortable. But what ends up happening most of the time is we tone down to Jesus. And we let them be who they are. They express themselves. They force their religion on you. Because ain't nothing wrong with us, 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 us. And so you have to sit down and be quiet. They get to say whatever they want to say. <laughs> they get to act however they want to act, do whatever they want to do, all in your presence, and you got to sit down and be quiet. Because you're trying to be like Jesus. Jesus ain't never do that. So when he was with them, he was with them, but he was still Jesus. He was still doing what he did. When he was in synagogue, he was still praying for people and healing people. Because that's what he do. He didn't say, well, no, I'm with them now. These people don't believe in that. You get what I'm saying? So we our being with them, our being in the midst of them, is us being in the midst of them. Not just our shell of our body and we have to hush and change who we are so that we can fit in and don't offend nobody. If it, it, it makes a little sense to you. Any other questions? I have a question about the Romans 8. Mm -hmm. Three, the part that says God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That and for sin is throwing me off a little bit because to me, the part makes sense about sending his son, own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
because Dim sent in the flesh, but I'm trying to figure out why was he sent for sin. For sin, because sin is the thing that, that has the stronghold over us. So it's not purely just the condemnation. Like most people think of the gospel, they think liberation from condemnation. I don't get to go to hell. That's what Jesus saved me from going to hell. So he not only came for the condemnation, he not only came to condemn sin, but he came because of sin or for sin. So sin is part of the reason that he came. You get what I'm saying? So since sin was in the world, sin dominating the people of God, sin is controlling us, sending us to hell. He came because of sin or for sin. So he came like sin and he condemned sin in the flesh, but he came for sin also. So it's because of sin that he had to come in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemn sin in the flesh. Okay, just help me out mm-hmm. here. So when I hear that, what I hear is essentially, so sin is the governance. It's like this governing power. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus came essentially to nullify that power. Like, so. He dealt with sin by not giving in to the governance of sin. Is that? That's that's a part of it. So let's say it came in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin and condemned sin in the flesh. So he came like sin. But the reason he came is for sin or because of sin. So sin is the thing that brought him. So if you take the, your governance, I like that thought and that idea. Uh, let's see a way, a picture to show you. Like you, you got a hostage situation. So somebody holding somebody inside a building. Now, the SWAT team doesn't just come because there's a little girl inside a building. You get what I'm saying? So they don't come in force, but they come because of the force. They come both. So they come with their force. They put their suit on. They get their guns. It's because somebody in there with a gun and holding and containing people in there. So they come like it and for it. So the, because of that is the reason that they're coming. And it's the same thing with Jesus. Sin is controlling us. Sin is condemning us. Sin is got his people hostage. So he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, like us. But that's the reason that he came. It's because of sin that he came. And he because of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So sin is the stuff that, that made them have to call 911. And Jesus responded. So it's because of sin. Any other questions? Go ahead. Okay, so in First Peter chapter 3. First Peter 3. Verse 6 is really where um uh, it was talking about wives or women adorning themselves. And then, well, anyways, the part I'm confused about is, verse 6, it says, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid of the amazement. I'm not sure what they're afraid of. What, they, what should they not be What should they not be afraid of? Or is it like, just don't be it's, it's just don't be scared, but it's flowing in the context of subjection, of being subject one to another. So a part of the fear 
is you can't trust. Uh-oh. <laughs> but a part of the fear is the fear of submitting yourself or allowing yourself to be led by another. You get what I'm saying? So there, there's a natural trepidation in that because we used to be in, in, in control of our own lives. You make your own decision. You're an independent one. See, but Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So she was in subjection to him. She allowed him to make decisions. She allowed him to lead. And she allowed him to take responsibility pretty much for their life. So if you can do the same, not being in fear, it, 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 it makes sense to you. So the not being afraid part is you having the confidence that when you submit yourself, you submit yourself to your husband in the fear of the Lord or as unto the Lord. So you trust that he going to lead me, he going to guide me, he going to take care of me. And if you're a fool, God going to take care of it. <laughs> Um, I guess going along with that, kind of, since I like likewise your husbands, dwell with your wife, according to knowledge. And if they don't, well, anyways, it says, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together with grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So, honor, that's like valuing. So, not valuing your wife, that makes your prayers not reach God. Like, that's that's what would hinder your prayers. If they don't value their wife, then God is going to hear you. That's what he did that. So, if you don't know how to treat your woman, you don't know how to honor her, and dwelling with her according to knowledge, you ain't studying your wife. <laughs> it's saying that your prayers could be hindered. So the way you treat your wife, God can be offended by that. Um, and then verse fifteen of the same. Uh, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks asks you a reason of the hope that's in you, with meekness and fear. How do you do things like that with fear? With fear? With fear is, is, is just what, it, what, it, what it's saying. But the picture is, is, it's not something that you take lightly. It's, it's a carefulness and it's a trembling and it's a consciousness of what it is that's going on. So when you honor God and you're given a reason for the hope that's inside of you, you don't do it with a cavalier spirit. You don't do it just, uh, but there's a fear, there's a carefulness and a tenderness that goes within the action. It's just like you paint. When you do a fine strokes, you do it with fear. Do you understand how? Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's more fear and there's more precision that goes in the strokes when you're doing fine strokes and small stuff or stuff that could bleed over into something else than when you just first paint the canvas. Because ain't nothing you can do wrong and then you, you just throw a flag of paint. You just make it everything black. 
You, you get what I'm saying? So that's what he means by with fear. He said the same thing in Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's a cautiousness. There's a You don't want to mess it up. Any other questions? They're all yours, man.